Hello and welcome to another edition of The Copper Show. I'm very glad to say I've got Hayden Locke, the CEO of Mary Macker, with me today um, again. And we're going to be talking all things copper. Hayden, how are you? Very well, thanks, Mel. Good to be back. Good to be back. Um, the summer holidays are with us uh, and you're home alone with the kids. Well, not home alone, but with the kids. Uh, is that uh, proving to be uh, good for your working day or does it kind of change the pattern a bit? Yeah, somewhat interrupted working day, and I imagine there'll probably be a couple of them come in during this chat. Good. Well, uh, today what I'd like to just talk about is uh, is timelines and kind of progress in the in the copper industry. Um, I've been really struck by uh, what Robert Friedland and Ivanhoe and Kamar um, Kakula is doing uh, <clears throat> as a production base. You know, they they produced I think one hundred and four thousand tons of copper this quarter. It's just a a powerhouse. Um, production asset and they that discovery was only made in 2008 uh by um, mates of mine actually kind of ross and tom but um that was they reached commercial production in 2022 which is is going some you know that's quite quick um but that's 14 years um have you have you had a look at um Kamar Kakula, do you know much about that um project or any comments on that timeline yeah it's a remarkable timeline i think um yeah, I think everybody who's looked at that timeline who's in the industry is is blown away by how quickly they did it. But it is classic Robert Friedland when he sets his mind to something. He has a remarkable ability of circling the wagons and pushing everyone in the right direction and raising the money required to to make that move. So um, it is an incredible asset. Uh, yeah, I think the production numbers coming out of it and the teams, there's ability to exceed the... Uh, see the nameplate capacity of the mills has been pretty incredible and um, they're expanding and it's going to be a, an amazing source of copper for the foreseeable future. It wasn't an overnight success though, in the, in, in a sense that the discovery was made in 2008, but um, Ivanhoe Mining has been in the Congo for, for decades. I mean, they've, 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 he, he was funding exploration for an awfully long time before that. I mean, it, 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 um, it was the product of uh, a lot of application of, uh, focus and money. Yeah, that's right. People ask all the time. I think you know, Friedman's been associated with several of the most significant discoveries um, across many commodities. People ask how on earth he manages to do that. Well, the answer is he's investing a lot of money through the cycle, significantly more than the major mining companies were for a long period of time. And so, you know, people see the success and, and thinking it's just gotten lacking. But the reality is he spent a lot of time and a lot of money. Uh, and continue to invest when that deals with. And in a sense, he, he was also very lucky that um, Kamoa Kakula is in the kind of the western um, foreland of the kind of the Congo. It's it's open savanna. It's been the, the forests have been denuded. There's not a big population there. There's not a um, a kind of a specific environmental kind of acute. Uh, point it's like it's not the middle of a game reserve let's put it that way um and so the kind of the development timelines were relatively well they're incredibly quick because there were there were fewer obstacles and it, it's not often that you get you come across uh, a development asset which can where all the doors can open very quickly it's like when you're driving out of london you get all the green lights it, it feels great but it doesn't happen very often yeah the legislative environment is really uh extending those timelines and making it not impossible to get mines into production, but certainly extending those timelines with the additional work that is required to make sure that mines are being developed sustainably and and uh, can 
and deliver benefits in the future. There's, um, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen the work of Richard Shodder, the guy from Minex Consulting in Australia. Uh, he's done quite a few studies showing that the kind of the timelines are actually increasing from discovery. And I think the average time length for a, for copper project is now, uh, 17 years. But it feels to me that the bigger the project, the, the slower it is, the, 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 the longer the timeline, but again, very specific to the geography that you're talking about. Um, I mean, these, these, actually, you know what, let's come on to the, uh, I, I will come on to the, the specifics of what it takes to get a big project into production. But I just want to kind of give a shout out, first of all, to the exploration discoveries in the Andes by the Lundine group, you know, with um, Philo and um, NGX. Um, I'd love to get your opinion on what they've been doing this last um, in, in recent months. Yeah, well, again, another group that is remarkable for its track record of success and uh, that whole region, the Vicuña region, is generating an enormous amount of excitement. Um, it is in the relatively early stages. So as we talk about timelines uh, to first production, it's in rel relatively early stages. But you know, it's now looking like it's a string of uh, you know, several of the most incredible new discoveries probably in the last 20 years in this part of the world. So I think... Um, we watch it with a great deal of interest. It's obviously captured the imagination of some of the majors with uh, BAP making an investment there. Um, and I think it's going to become a quite significant uh, potential future source of all of these fundamental commodities. Uh, whether or not that happened while I'm still working will remain to be seen, but um, I've got no doubt we're witnessing uh, some, some of the most uh, amazing new discoveries that you're likely to see. I, I, I feel very cautious about talking kind of... Um, uh, in any bad terms about the work they're doing because it's 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 so fantastic but i think it, we do have to acknowledge that it's high and it's on the boundary of um two countries and you know they've got a lot complex issues to deal with including water and um environmental issues i mean in terms of timelines have you got kind of um how do they cope with things like that yeah it's very challenging i, I think um you know, it just adds a layer of complexity that, that will really extend those timelines. Um, you know, if there was a group to be moving those projects forward, I would say it's in it's in the best hands that it could possibly be in, given their track record uh, in the Latin American uh, copper or general commodity space. Um, so it's definitely in the right hands. You know, how do you go about it? With a great deal of elbow grease and a lot of time and a lot of money and... Um, you know, a lot of changes of strategy as you find blockages and dead ends, and you know you have to be you have to be pretty fluid in your strategy and, and are able to change relatively quickly and make decisions very quickly. And that's why I think you know if any group can move it quickly and deliver it in a meaningful timeline, it will be that group because of their ability to be agile and make good decisions. Chile, there's been a lot of kind of uh, confusion and there's been lots of mixed messages about the environmental. Uh, in, environmental legislation, some developments have been rebuffed. There's been changes in the Congress. Um, you're developing in Chile. What's, can you give me your take on Chile as a mining jurisdiction in terms of timelines and permitting and what it means? Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of noise and a lot of press, and it seems that the press only ever reports uh, one negative slant on what is actually occurring. And so what we've seen is a very rational response to quite aggressive attempts to, I won't say hijack, but change the legislation to be much more uh, 
anti-mining. You know, I think that's been pretty clear, and that has been rebuffed. The, the mining sector is incredibly important to Chile, like it is in Australia. It's an incredibly important part of the economy. And Sorry, who who was trying to um, uh, change the mining legislation? So, you know, just, just provide a bit of context, please. Yeah, during the rewrite of the Constitution, which voted uh, down last year, uh, there was a small group um, of, sort of hard-left political activists that were trying to implement uh, much more I think, stringent controls, um, which I don't think the mining industry is against, but some of them were completely um, completely ridiculous and would never have been able to be achieved. So there needs to be a balance of, yes, we want to protect, but we, along with this realistic and rational and able to be implemented. Um, that was voted down. A lot of those changes were voted down aggressively by the, uh, the public referendum that occurred on the Constitution. The new constitutional assembly has been formed, and it is a very different uh, makeup. And that's, I think, reflective of the view of the Chilean people that want change. It's got to be reasonable, and so you know they they've spoken with their votes where it counts. So I think we'll see a little bit more moderation. But I don't think I think the general trend in the mining industry is towards more regulation around this very important issue. And so we've just got to be prepared that this is going to occur all mines and it will add time it doesn't necessarily mean the mines won't get into production it just means there will be additional time additional work uh and additional cost to get to that final first production master so in some ways it's not different from many places around the world in the sense that legislation is increasing environmental regulations are kind of more stringent um, and you've got to demonstrate that you've, you're taking this responsibly and doing things according to the, 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 the law that prevails. Absolutely. There is no jurisdiction for mining in the world, despite what people can tell you, that does not have an increased burden and an increased requirement focused on sustainable development of mining projects. I think there is a growing recognition as the mining industry spends a little bit more time and money educating people on how important it is that we need it, so we can't not have it. So if you, if you want us to help solve these problems that we've identified in the world, we need we need support to develop these assets more sustainably. We need to be reasonable in terms of uh, the regulations that we require of the mining industries, and I think it's happening the world over. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of Africa with a nascent mining industry or in Australia, the US, Canada, with a very mature mining industry, we're seeing increased focus on sustainable development um, across the board. Does that mean you think the timelines, you know, the 17-year timeline is likely to actually be slower and is a the, is the bigger the project, the slower it's likely to be? Is it, is, it, is it much easier to get a small thing into production quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I think scale is always uh, something that um, is a big driver of your ability to get into production quickly. Um, certainly on the permitting side, but also on the technical side, it's just you know a much bigger project to understand and, and identify and address all the risks that come with these projects. Uh, the, the scale of the project is very important for that. Um, I think there will. So yes, absolutely. On average, the timelines are going to increase, uh, especially as projects um, are becoming you know in, in more difficult locations than they've ever been before. Um, I think though that there will still be nuances within a single jurisdiction and i talk about this a lot with both you and matt that 
you know, if you just say Chile is good or Chile is bad, that fails to take into account the nuance of the various areas within Chile. So there is a big difference between permitting a mine in the Athabagasta region of Chile, which is uh, its whole economy basically is mining, uh, versus uh, you know getting something approved in southern Chile, um, you know, right down near Patagonia. That's going to be a very different different permitting environment. The same in Australia. You know, if you're permitting something in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales next to some billionaire sports horse stud, uh, it's going to be very different to getting something permitted in you know out in the gold fields in Western Australia. It's, a, it's just a, a nuance within um, the geographies, and so there will be some groups that can permit very quickly. And I go back to this: location is very, very important in your ability to get from where you are today, you know, an idea, a concept into production. Uh, in a reasonable timeline, location is one of the key things that I think, as an investor, we should be we should be looking at. Which is which is kind of riffs back to the uh, Kamoa Kakula situation in the in the, the Western Foreland of the the DLC. There was it was a very good location for it to be a mine because there were there were no tourist hotspots, there were no millionaires' mansions and um, vineyards. And coming back to Chile, one of the so w- when I speak to people. Um, Kind of the, some of the local geologists, they they say that the high Andes with the kind of ecological sensitivity, and the tourist areas further south, those are kind of the the, the places which kind of raise flags in terms of timelines for them. And they say that the kind of the coastal belt, the the lower population density, the um, the less kind of sensitive. I mean, everywhere is ecologically sensitive, but the, you know there are degrees. Um, they say that those are the areas where you can get your permits done more quickly. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. There are, again, there's nuances, but absolutely, I think in the high Andes, um, you know, there are glaciers feeding fresh water into the rivers um, that need to be managed. Uh, you know, I think there are, is added complexity. And then obviously you get into the, how do you build the infrastructure to get up there? Um, you have much longer infrastructure timelines. Um, to build out that infrastructure in much larger areas to potentially impact. Yes, absolutely. It adds more complexity and will certainly add some time to the uh, ability to get into production. And then coming back to a smaller project is easier to build than a bigger project. You only ever build a smaller project when you've got the grade and the economics to you know, have um, kind of financial uh, critical mass. So you need the kind of the grade and the metallurgy to work well for you to be able to start small so that you can then kind of incrementally develop a larger project down the line. And, but a lot of the big porphyries are very low grade, which is why they have to start so big, which is perhaps a challenge in terms of um, timelines and getting going. Yeah, I think also, you know, the, the economics on a bigger project with those economies of scale will always tend to look better on paper. Uh, and it, of course, it makes sense for a big company that has the balance sheet and doesn't have the funding constraints uh, to go for an optimized right size project, which tends to be much larger with those very, very large projects. You know, uh, I think um, that comes with numerous challenges. Permitting is one of them. You know, permitting a very large scale mine um, is, is challenging just because of the amount of material moved and the amount of waste generated and all of that. But then I think if you look at the technical aspects of drilling out a you know a large copper porphyry and the cost and the time and the amount of drilling and the amount of modeling and then uh you know trying to work out what the best sequence to develop it is 
you're talking several years of studies before you even come to a conclusion of what the best way to develop the most financially optimum and risk-adjusted way to develop these projects is a very complicated project. Very complicated project. I, I, perhaps naively, but when I kind of running exploration programs on copper porphyries, there's always the, the attractiveness that with a very f- small number of drill holes, because you can get um, very continuous mineralization, which is both laterally continuous and kind of vertically continuous, you've got the potential to drill out a significant tonnage with a very small meterage. So in, in some ways, your first steps can be really, really quick, much quicker than they can be on a, a um, highly nuggety variable gold deposit which needs close space drilling you can you can put a block of mineralization together really really quickly but that's not the whole story is it no and i think if you can um, paint a picture of what may or may not happen between those drill holes and you know you get some great lateral vertical continuity uh but the devil is always in the in terms of coming back in and and uh drilling on tighter spacing now there's less variability at porphyry but what we know of geology is there's always going to be variability and it's that variability that is a killer when you get into production. If you don't understand it, uh, it can really cause problems. It can work in your favour, but it, it seems to rarely work in your favour. It always, almost always seems to work against you, um, those unknown unknowns. I remember a couple of times when it has worked in their favour. I remember um, Rangold with um, Marilla when they... They did uh, when they were started ramping up. They were getting more gold than they expected. They had got they, they had underestimated the grade, although that did create a problem because there was gold going to the tailings, which was a kind of a, um, a lost uh, bit of a kind of economic opportunity. But it was still an, a relatively nice problem to have. Yep, it's always it's, it's management when uh, when it goes in your favour, and it's uh, geological problems when it goes against. Let's talk about kind of the detail of kind of timeline planning and kind of how you think about. Um, staging and because um, you've gone from a PEA and you're going straight to a pre you're just going straight to a feasibility study that presumably I, we've spoken about it on a kind of a Marimaka special kind of or separate conversation but it's about trying to condense that timeline to production yeah and we, we did an internal pre-feasibility study so typically the way it works is PEA is about a concept okay conceptually should we spend any more money on this project should we continue to invest? You know, shall we take it forward by wrapping some high-level economics around it? We did quite a lot more work um, than just high-level economics. So we went into the detail, but you can do just a sort of back of the envelope. Okay, should we be spending more money? The pre-feasibility study is about trade-offs. Okay, are we developing this the right way? Should we be thinking about this in a different uh, in a different way? And for us, the project that we have is relatively simple. Um, you know, it's not a huge sub-level block cave that has, you know, multiple permutations of development that could be uh, put in place in order to optimally develop this. Um, you know, we don't have 25 different potential uh, sites to locate things. We're not thinking about potentially having a plant at the top and, you know, slurry pipeline down to our uh, port facilities. We don't have to f- identify port facilities and all that. So it's a much simpler project. So we did an internal, um, what we call the PFS trade-off, which kind of addressed all of those areas of uncertainty for us. And so you're right, we'll then go into a feasibility study. I think it's an important step for a bigger project. You have to go through that pre-feasibility study to really go, okay, well, 
you know, is this better than that? And come to an economic and and sort of risk management view on the optimum way to develop the project. Uh, so that's where you start to see a lot of time and money being spent is on those trade-offs. You can spend a lot of time analysing which is the best way to develop it. And I guess that decision is becomes more critical the more marginal the project because tiny variations in the in your setup and your approach and your scheduling and your timing can affect the uh, economic viability of a project. But if you've got a greater margin, um, I mean, we were speaking about this last time, um, the, the capex of a an oxide um, project is very different to the capex profile of a sulfide operation. And so that gives you a degree of flexibility. So getting the, uh, obviously you want to get the right uh, format and the right schedule, but getting it absolutely to the precision engineering to the millimeter is less critical for an oxide than it is for a, or a higher margin project than it is for us, a, 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 a less, uh, a, a more marginal project. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're less driven by return on investor capital, if you're a single standalone company with that's your only asset, you're going to be a lot more focused on controlling the capex and therefore right sizing the project. Whereas an Anglo-American BHP or Rio might say, well, you know, we're getting 10% return on our money, but in 25 years' time, we'll be operating and so we're, we're less concerned about, uh, you know, whether or not we spend that capital up front because we're thinking about this being a 7 or for 100-year mine. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are there are a lot of things that drive decision-making depending on your position as a company and what you're trying to achieve and what you're able to achieve in terms of raising money. Uh, so it is a relatively challenging process you go through in that very risky process. Um, that's a really interesting point. Thank you. The So you're, you're saying that a major might look at your project completely different to a kind of a, a medium development company because they're not looking, they're not balance sheet constrained. They're more driven on product. Is that what they're trying to do? Is they're trying to just make sure that they've got a kind of a, a or return of capital long term? You know, yeah, I think they're trying to find something that is meaningful for them as a company in terms of scale. So they don't want to start with something small and then have to wrap it up unless they don't understand the uh, commodity. But if it's a copper project, you know, they want to have a couple hundred thousand tons a year of production, something that's going to move the needle. And so they're going to take a view that actually you should invest the money, bigger money up front, even though that might not be the optimum uh, return on invested capital. Them having it right sized from the beginning and <clears throat> you know might be the best decision for them, and they you know sometimes have different views on how cap so they they may view all of the money that's been spent on really um, some of the construction costs, some of the pre-strip mining that might be just sunk capital, and so then they can justify the future investment on only the next next dollars being spent. So there's a lot of um, yeah there's a lot of difference in. Uh, strategic thinking about allocation of capital at a major company as there is compared to a company of ours. And that typically means a longer timeline, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the major's timelines to develop a project is significantly longer than a, you know, a smaller mid-sized company. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, a, a group like, well, Ivanhoe, which is now in the major category, but if you look at their, the way they approach mine development, it's very, very different to how the majors would do it. I think one of the best examples would be Fortescue Mining. You know, there is an example of a group that uh, broke all records in developing iron ore mines in Australia. Um, very, very different approach 
taking a lot more risk on than the majors would be willing to. And again, your appetite for taking on some risk will impact your timelines and majors typically don't like risk. They like to cover off everything down to the letter. Uh, whereas other groups, um, you'd, you'd reference uh, Rangold, you know, they've done it very successfully. The other group that takes really good risk-adjusted decisions is B2 Gold, um, who I'm quite familiar with. But, you know, they're exceptional at developing. In copper, First Quantum is absolutely world-class, uh, and they, you know, they take risk-adjusted decisions on the fly to adjust the timelines of their projects. Now, that takes a lot of skill and a lot of experience to do that. It's, uh, so... That can be very, very risky if you take that approach without the right skill set. And then you come back to the the Lundin group with kind of no guts, no glory, and it's, um, you know, you take the risks. And what's extraordinary is that when it's done with, uh, as you say, experience and technical expertise, uh, then the rewards are phenomenal. And if you look, now Fortis, um, Fortescue and First Quantum are both majors, and their cash flow profiles are just ridiculous. I mean, they're 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 dominantly kind of powerful cash generating machines it's really extraordinary so when it comes to thinking about timelines of copper projects we're in this funny mix aren't we because there's there's not a huge amount of available capital uh it's difficult in some ways to get um the the mid-tier and the juniors financed the the majors as you've just described are slow and cautious and conservative the discovery rates for new projects notwithstanding the the vicuña district done in um by the lundines is is still pretty low so um presumably this all feeds into the kind of the the, the general supply demand thesis that supply is going to continue to be constrained on an ongoing basis absolutely i think that's the biggest uh driver of this constrained uh supply thesis not forever, but certainly for the next, in my view, decade, which is why, you know, I think I've said previously on the show with Matt, I have never been more bullish a commodity than I am copper. Because of that, uh, because of the demand profile that is growing and has to grow if we're truly going to electrify and we've got all these ambitious targets which cannot be achieved, even if the mining industry is completely successful, they cannot be achieved. And so the only way it happens is if the copper price goes up quite significantly, um, and encourages, there are lots of projects around, but they need a higher incentive price to get into production. But even if we get that pricing, it's going to take years for the supply to catch up um, in lieu of, you know, Kamoa tripling its production and uh, filling that gap, which it may do. Um, you know, I think the next five to 10 years in this space is going to be really, really positive as a result of all of those things we've discussed. One of my pet topics is supply elasticity or supply inelasticity. When I look at lithium or graphite or indeed nickel, you know, if there's a price rise, there's an ability to ramp up production. These are very, uh, particularly graphite and, and lithium, they're very immature industries. You know, there's, there's plenty of rock which is there to be developed, but um, copper is supply inelastic. Uh, it's been all of the, well, a lot of the good stuff has been mined. And these timelines, you know, if the price rises, um, you won't get that supply response in the same scale or the same level, the same proportion that you would for um, uh, lithium or, or, or graphite. I mean, do you um, agree with that? Yeah, I think there, I think it depends on how quickly the prices uh, increase, but I think there will be a lag. I think there is the ability for brownfields expansion 
and more copper to be developed or more copper to be produced from existing assets for a period of time, which should have quicker timelines of production than, than say, a, a new greenfields development. Uh, but I think certainly there is a there is a time lag. But even if the copper price accelerates, there's time lag. And every month that goes by that these big projects that are owned by Success Wanton uh, are not being greenlighted, uh, it means the whipsaw at the end, in my view, is going to be more aggressive. I think there's a period where the copper price just goes vertical uh, and stays relatively high until all of these new projects are incentivized to come on. Uh, and then we may see a trade-off, hence, hence the bullishness on the copper of the next five to ten years. Whoop, whoop. We're kind of um, bullish copper. Um, no surprise there. Um, just to wrap up, what's your timeline on production at Marimaka? Well, we're out, the, the main driver of our timeline to production is our permitting. Um, no surprise there. It's our critical pass. Uh, everything else is relatively short time frame, but we can't start construction until the permits are in. So... With the new investment from Mitsubishi, we're kicking off all of the work to submit our permit uh, application by the first quarter of next year. That's a pretty aggressive timeline, but we think it's achievable now that we've got those funds in. Uh, we'll do the DFS in parallel, the bankable finance feasibility study in parallel with that, with a goal that it will be delivered sometime around Q3 of next year. Uh, and then immediately following that, we're deep, deep into financing. Um, based on those timelines, we think we can be in construction early 2025, uh, and that will give us first production. Well, it's a slightly less than 18 months to build it. First production after that, commercial fully wrapped up production. Let's call it two years. So we're, you know, we're sort of late 2026, early 2027. There is really nothing else in the copper space that can be in production in that timeline. I think that's one of what a large reason why Mitsubishi is very interested in us because the cupboards are bare for new new copper supply, uh, and so you know we're pretty excited about that. And actually, I think, I mean, Sergio discovered this in 2016. Uh, that would be so, so nearly 10 years from discovery to first production. I think we'd be breaking all records <laughs> if we achieved that. That's the goal. We want to we want to set a precedent on how it's, how how to move the project forward. Obviously, there's a benefit in that we have a much uh, smaller and simpler project. That's the goal. Let's see if we can execute. Uh, well, good luck. And Hayden, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Thanks, Carl.